Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm Emily. And I'm Jessica. And we're the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. I just are United Methodist clergy women from upstate New York. And we're finding a different way to do spirituality. We are recording this, and so we are the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers, and our guest today is our friend Rebecca Laird, who Emily and I have known for years because she has served in Upper New York with us, and now her ministry has taken us on a different path, and I know her to be an incredibly wise woman and mother, and also somebody with a very, very dynamic and interesting faith story. And just generally a badass. So that's kind of why I wanted to invite her into this space. So Rebecca, the first place that we always start with people that we that we welcome onto this podcast is to tell us whatever you'd like to about your spiritual journey. Well, first of all, Natalie, thank you. That was very kind of you to, to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> I see my spiritual journey is uh, definitely a long journey. It started when I was a kid and my parents started going to the United Methodist church in my hometown. And I grew up in the church. Uh, my very first pastor was uh, Reverend Margie Mason. And so I always joked saying I never knew women couldn't be clergy until I went to college um, and ran into that um, uh stereotype. <laughs> and, um, I, my home church, um, was probably is more conservative than I am now. Uh, but they really raised me and they really helped, um, support my faith. And when I went off to college, I started really kind of exploring my own faith a little bit, um, but still was in that, uh, I went to Roberts Wesleyan college so that also kind of uh, form me, formed kind of who I was. And um, I met my ex-husband while I was there and um, married into um, married him right after college and went off to Asbury Seminary. And so all of that kind of formed my spiritual journey and who I was um, back then. And, you know, the thing I think that really... Um, like most people, um, when we um, enter into a phase of crisis, we really kind of um, have to reevaluate all of our spiritual um, thoughts and journeys at times. And so when I divorced my ex-husband in 2009, we separated, well, we really separated 2000, early 2010. Um, that's really when I started a new spiritual journey. And that was my journey of really trying to understand who God was, um, because I was brought up to believe that you do the right things and you live the right way and your life is going to be good. Right. And uh, that's not what happened. You know, I followed all the rules. I did everything I was taught as a child and as a teen and as an adult and followed the rules of the institutions I attended um, because they had their own rules. Um, and my life didn't turn out um, the way that I thought it would. And so I really had to wrestle with who God was and who God was to me then um, and now. And I really kind of started to understand God in a different way that God really, you know, we could think of God as the punitive God in the Old Testament. Uh, but Jesus came. And so to me, like it was a real transform transformation to realize the love um, that God wasn't just about following rules, but God was about really loving um, people for who they are and where they are um, and allowing God to really reach people on a journey that, you know, it wasn't my responsibility to um, tell people where they needed to go or what their journey needed to look like, but really it was my job to share that love of God with every person I met uh, unconditionally. And what did that look like? So, um, yeah, I think that um, that really transformed me and who I was and the ministry that um, I moved into. So then you were already a pastor when you experienced this transformation or in seminary so yeah I was actually already not only a pastor but ordained um an elder uh, before I really went through this journey I had actually just been ordained 
um, in the at the 2009 annual conference. Um, and then that fall, um, it became clear my um, ex-husband and I were going to end up getting divorced and uh, we separated early January. Um, and from then on, um, yeah, it was just a, there was a lot of soul searching. There was a lot of soul searching that fall too, but really um, the cusp of it probably was early January that year. So then I, I would imagine that had a pretty significant impact on how you pastored. I mean, you, you talk about how it changed your relationship with God, which would carry over into your ministry. Absolutely. And it did. Uh, it totally changed how I looked at ministry and, excuse me, how I looked at how, um, uh, just how people should encounter one another. Even my preaching um, transitioned uh, from really just helping, like I always preached in a way that to um, help people understand what the scripture says. That's, that's no different. Uh, and, and that's still the same today. But I think I see the scripture from a different lens. I see it from the lens of a, a God of love and a God of grace. And uh, even though I was always brought up in the Wesleyan movement, you know, I was always United Methodist and understood John Wesley's teachings. I, I think I just accepted them in a different way. Like it, it almost went from these are just the teachings to like, I'm living this and I have experienced this in a way that I, I could pour it out of me um, or God could pour it out of me really um, where before it was just more of teaching, mm -hmm. you know, like I had learned, like, I'm telling you what I've learned. Um, and now I'm telling you what I've experienced. Which is also a very Wesleyan pattern. Yes, <laughs> it is a Wesleyan pattern. And it's also just how we transform over time. Mm -hmm. You know, it comes with life experience. And, and tragically, you know, crises are a big part of what ends up turning us into who we become. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the lessons come from the hardest things. Yeah. And I found that in the ministry, the, the best thing that I can do is just be transparent and honest. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And I was at, you know, at the time of my divorce, I was actually at um, a church that's known to be really hard and really hard on its pastors. And I was already in the process of, of asking for a move when um, I announced the separation and divorce. And what was interesting was to see how that church turned and embraced me and loved on me in a way that it had never done um, the entire time I had been there. Right. Uh, all of a sudden I became human to people who had experienced, I would have never have known that they had experienced a similar situation, never would have known that they had an understanding. Um, but they really like, you know, I remember the Sunday I announced and told people, um, and, you know, just the outpouring of love and support on their way out of, you know, I've been where you are, you're going to be fine. It was just, uh, it was unbelievable. Um, the switch that took place and that, you know, to this day, um, you know, my best friend lives in that town. So, you know, we go back, my son calls her aunt Steffi. And so, you know, we go back and visit her family and, um, periodically we'll go to that church with them. And, um, and I just got to baptize one of Stephanie's grandchildren, um, there, uh, this summer. And that was just, it was a joy to be with people and, um, to still, you know, there's a lot of history there. Um, but they still are loving, they're loving people when you really get to know them. Yeah. Totally. And it's honestly unfortunate. It's an unfortunate um, consequence of this connectional itinerant system that some churches develop reputations yes. for being either the difficult church or uh, the easy church by comparison or a place that takes in newcomers really well or um I don't know. It's, it, I think they really need to stand on their own better than they do, yeah. better than we allow them to. Oh, very much so. Very much so. Yeah. 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 So one very interesting turn that I know that your spiritual journey took is one that took you outside of the traditional church. And if you feel comfortable telling us that story, I would love to hear more about it in the space of this podcast. Mm -hmm. Sure. 
So uh, my journey um, transitioned actually a little bit first uh, while I was still serving local churches. Um, you know, after uh, getting divorced and really realizing like I didn't feel like I had a place in the church. In fact, a lot of clergy were the ones that would come to me during hearing about the fact I was getting divorced and offered to, you know, do counseling with me and, and know my now ex-husband. And I'm like, you don't understand. Like, do you think I didn't try? <laughs> you know, so like there was a lot of, there was a lot of ways that I was being made to feel like I didn't have a place. And Bishop Matthews was really gracious in um, elevating me into leadership to really help um, uh, support and uh, make me feel like I not only had a place um, as a clergy person, but also, you know, as a leader. Um, and that, you know, was really important at the time. And I was, I'm, I value that greatly. I learned a lot from Bishop Matthews in my time being his Episcopacy chair. And, um, but I also started, um, doing new church ministry and doing new church starts and that, um, that became reaching people who had, who don't walk through the doors of, the, of a normal church, um, became my passion. And, um, you know, part of it was really because I didn't always feel like I had a place and I felt more accepted outside the church than in the church. Um, but it was very interesting, you know, to, become the the person that would go to at the time it was Rosie's Sports Pub and Grill and you know I'd walk in and I could hear hey Rev from across the corner you know like across the bar <laughs> when I would walk in there's no times, Rosie's yeah <laughs> right um and there are times where I would uh you know I'd have office hours there and you know sweet potatoes and um sweet potato fries and diet Pepsi and um you know it was just a really good um it was a really good experience and, and it really pushed me outside my comfort zone. And it really taught me that, that God really, God uses me the most when he pushes me outside my comfort zone. Um, God, um, uh, God is really good at that actually. <laughs> um, and, uh, there's times where I call it like this holy indigestion. Like I, I know that God is really pushing me because I'm like, I, you know, like, I just feel it. Like I I'm uncomfortable where I am and I have to move. I have to take that step to wherever I'm feeling called. And, um, that happened not that long ago. Um, in 2016, I was serving a local church and I felt God calling me to go back to school and get my MBA. And that was a huge step outside my comfort zone. I don't have a business background, but I had run a nonprofit cafe as a new church start pastor and learned a lot of do's and don'ts, uh, in that process and thought it would be good. Um, at the time, I really thought it would just be good for me to learn that to um, do church differently um, and to understand, you know, the budget side and all of that and, and really be able to lead um, differently in the church. And then when I finished the program, um, there was lots of things that was pushing me to leave um, local church ministry. Uh, there was there was a lot of things that were a factor. Um, and I you know, looking back on it at the time, I really felt it was God calling me. And I, and I still believe that God was really leading me to do ministry different. And um, I think we're moving into a, a time where full-time pastoring looks very different. Uh, churches can't necessarily afford, afford a full-time pastor. And if they do afford one, it's still not at a very livable wage. And, yeah. you know, being a single mom and, and raising a child that is six, you know, he's 15, six, six, 16 size men's shoes. Um, he is not small. His clothes are not cheap. <laughs> the food that he eats is not cheap. Um, you know, trying to support that on my, um, clergy salary was, was really impossible. Yeah. And so, and paying off all my student loans. So, um, among other things. So it's just really, pushed me to go back to school. And um, I started working at the University of Rochester Medical Center uh, in 2018 and really have done ministry differently. I've, I've noticed that uh, I do ministry every day with my staff and it just looks different. Mm -hmm. um, it just isn't, you know, I'm not, you talk about God without really, um, without being in a person's face about God and spirituality. And just really being the God with skin on, you know, we've talked, I, you know, talk about that in other circles, but really that's what we do in the world. And, uh, that has been an amazing experience for me to really be able to share about faith. And also, um, you know, they all know that I have a MDiv and I've pastored local churches and, you know, they know my background and know that I still do that and that I still, um, do pulpit 
supply here and there and and do work within the conference and they're all really supportive of it and they come and they ask me questions you know i had one person come and and ask me uh you know why you know how do i believe in a, in a loving god when when my three she was three at the time i think that maybe younger than that her daughter um was dropped down this the cellar stairs by the, the caretaker and um has been permanently brain damaged you know has had permanent brain damage ever since and so like how do you believe in a god that is loving when those types of things happen and so you know being able to have conversations about evil and um that how evil's in this world and that doesn't mean that god causes that to happen it doesn't mean god allows that to happen it just means that it happens and god walks with us through it and so being able to to have those really hard heart-to-heart conversations um, with people that might never walk into the church to ask, um, but because I'm where I am, you know, I'm accessible um, for them. And um, this last summer, I started bartending um, as a side job and uh, just for extra money at first, but it really honestly has also become such a, a great thing. It's moved me into working at uh, New York Kitchen Cafe in Canadagua. And um, if you went and asked my floor manager who I am, they'll say it, I'm their pastor. Um, and so like when, when they say that, like it just, you know, it makes me smile because um, I know that I'm doing ministry there every day. I go to work there and uh, it's fun. It's a different type of ministry. And, uh, but you're listening to people and you're, helping people. And I don't just bartend there. I host, I serve, I, I do almost anything and everything there. Um, and it's just a, it's a lot of fun, but it's, it really is a, a ministry in itself too. Yeah. That's a job description that I didn't know that I should shoot for someday bar chaplain. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's funny though, when, when I was brand, brand new to pastoral ministry, like fresh out of seminary, newly commissioned pastoring for the first time ever, like a couple weeks into my first appointment, my husband and I went on a date. This was before children when we could go on dates. Um, we went on a date and it was to the, like the local Applebee's or Chili's or whatever it was in that town. And we were sitting at the bar with our drinks and appetizers and the bartender just started like chatting us up and he was like oh what brings you guys here what do you do for a living and so that's when he found out that I was a pastor and I kid you not the very next thing he said was oh my gosh you're a pastor I said yeah I'm a pastor he said my grandmother just died I've been having a really hard time with that and I was like and date night just took a turn I didn't expect but but to your point I mean there's a lot of ministry to be done outside the church. And in my experiences too, even though I am still pastoring full-time, I I, I still think that I make more disciples of Jesus Christ outside the church than I do within it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I I feel that. I mean, that's definitely, and they might not call themselves that. I guess that's the piece of, right? It's that piece of Mm -hmm. coming to realize that our structure says this is what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ well what if they're doing that without I mean I feel like there's people that are living into that without ever being able to claim that because that's just they don't want to claim that right Mm -hmm. um and so how do you count that and that was one of the things that when I was doing new church starts um full time like how do I claim the people that I'm ministering with on the street corner that they don't want to be called a disciple they don't want to be baptized they they just want to serve um Mm -hmm. and they want to help people and they want to share god's love but they're not going to necessarily say it in the same way that we do and uh there was no way to quantify that and so you know when our system doesn't allow us to quantify that it makes it look like things are not successful in the way that our system wants it to look successful And all of this is just, it's stirring in my head questions that I always have about the nature of where the church is and where the church is going versus where it should be going. Mm -hmm. Um, Right now, uh, we are um, really interested in um, making intentional discipleship plans and making intentional disciples and then coming up with like um a plan with concrete steps that you can follow that once you complete those concrete steps you will officially be a bona fide uh disciple of jesus christ 
And I, I made a very rudimentary discipleship plan for my church um, so that I could so that I could do what has asked of me. Um, and I, I, I kept it pretty broad and pretty vague intentionally because I felt like that's the only way you could really live into something like that truthfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and it's based on, you know, get to know who Jesus is, get invested in who Jesus is, and then share all that Jesus love with other people. But that feels more like just very general directions for how to be a decent person. Um, And meanwhile, we, our churches are all shrinking. Mm -hmm. Churches that could never have fathomed having a less than full-time pastor are now looking into all kinds of different situations where either they'll merge with another church or they'll share their pastor with another church in another town. I've served two appointments that were like that. So I'm speaking from experience, Um, you know, and like we're spending a lot of time wringing our hands over where the people are. And sometimes approaching this as a millennial, it gets a little frustrating to keep hearing those questions because I kind of know where the people are. They, they, they just don't want to hang out on Sunday morning in church because they just don't think there's anything for them there. And they're at least two thirds right. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I mean, this age old complaint that we have about gosh, on Sunday mornings, all of the young families, they're taking their kids to sports. I don't understand why they want their kids at sports instead of at church. And um, forgive my, you know, my Judge Judy voice there, but (laughs) the, the reason why they want their kids at sports is because their kids are encouraged to be themselves there and they're nurtured and they're fed and they're taught life skills and they make friendships. And those are all really valuable things for them. Whereas Clearly, they don't believe they will receive those things on Sunday morning. Yeah, there's other kids there. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Like, yeah. We actually have lucked out because um, there's a group of of young families that now bring enough, like enough small families that bring their kids on Sunday morning that this morning when we went up to communion, my daughter was holding the hands of the other little girl that she was in the Sunday school room with. and then she was like, she's my best friend when we were on the way home. So, I mean, it's like, it's still possible to do that, but you do have to have like a critical mass of people that come regularly and that's hard to achieve. It is. Yeah. And I think there's also the piece, you know, now that I'm not um, serving a local church all the time um, and I'm, you know, knowing what it's like, I, I remember when I was um, doing new church starts and my coach said, I want you to sleep in for th- a month on Sunday mornings. I don't want you to go to church. Um, and I want you to learn how yummy it is. That's how she used to describe it. And, you know, I will tell you that there is a gift sometimes, um, to that. Like I know for me, I work seven, uh, six days a week, uh, between my two jobs. And like next week I will work seven cause I'm pulpit supplying. So when I have a Sunday that I don't have to get up and um, go anywhere, like I love watching online or be participate. I don't just watch, but participate in online worship, but mind you, I might participate in online worship while I'm washing my dishes, um, cooking breakfast, brunch for my fam, for my son and I, um, or his girlfriend, if she's coming over, um, you know, getting things tidied around. Like I can't tell you how many sermons that's how I've listened to and like have talked back to my phone. Like as I'm like going around the apartment, you know, church looks different. Um, and people who, um, who don't show up in, in, in person worship, you know, there's lots of other ways that we're worshiping. So yeah, like I, I, I hear what you all are saying and I guess I've lived into that and I've seen it now from a different side. Um, it's Sunday mornings can be hard, um, especially for families. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want to fight with my child one more morning to get him up early to go somewhere that he doesn't necessarily want to go. Yeah. You know, I have to do Which that I mean, five days a week. <laughs> I think institutional church as we have known, it has gotten so single-minded about what church ought to look like that there's this sense of like, 
well, if, if not Sunday mornings, then they must not want the love of Jesus. And like the, to draw that, that broad of a connection, I guess, I think is, is where a lot of, a lot of our churches and church leaders maybe are missing some extraordinary opportunities. I can think of troves of people who are millennials and Gen Zs who might not use that same language, but want the love of Jesus, want community, want connection, want hope, want peace, want joy, want a sense of promise for the future. Um, you know, as we're dealing with all of the things, right, war and climate change and all of the th gun violence, all of the things, all of the isms too, that that to to know that we have something, something of hope and joy and peace that we can offer but that it doesn't, it's likely not going to work if it comes packaged as a traditional Sunday morning service. I think that's where the real opportunity is for so many of our, our church leaders. And I think, Becky, you're, you're a living example of that, that your pastor to your coworkers at URMC, that you're the bar chaplain um and and neither of those are official titles that have been bestowed upon you by the conference or anyone else they're just you living out your faith in your day-to-day -day life and showing people what holy love looks like yeah yeah and even within our structure like i i'm not considered an extension ministry um, um are you family leave personally i'm on personal leave yeah um, so, you know, when I went on personal leave, it was intentionally at first, um, to bridge when we could possibly consider it, um, extension ministry. But one of the things that's hard with extension ministry is you have to have a supervisor in the place that you're working, be willing to sign off on your extension ministry mm -hmm. and in a place like U of R, um, or really any corporation, right. That isn't, um, focus on building disciples is not interested in having someone there as an extension ministry. Like that's a very threatening um, uh, thing to sign off on and say that you'll supervise. Um, so I'm not in extension ministry, but that's really what I'm doing. You know, so uh -huh. I've had to really kind of wrestle with that too, of being able to say, yeah, I'm on personal leave. And yes, as a, as extension ministry, even if the United Methodist Church won't see it as extension, extension ministry, because I, I don't have a supervisor to sign off to say, yeah, she's in an extension ministry. <laughs> like they're yeah. not willing to say that. And, and maybe some of that is because, I, you know, I struggle with how to articulate it sometimes to, to um, them, but I, I haven't figured out a way to articulate it in a way that it doesn't come across as threatening um, because I'm not there to proselytize my staff you know, if I was, I'd be fired, you know, like, you know, so this is a piece of, you know, how do you, how do we help the church understand what it means to be in ministry and that it looks different and it's okay for it to look different. And no, I'm not just a lay person in ministry in wherever I work. Like there's a different, when people know I have a clergy background that I'm clergy, they treat me different, not a hundred percent different, but they expect that I'm holding their confidence. They expect that when they come to me that, you know, they can talk to me about whatever it is that they want to talk to me about. And that I will be there to counsel them and love them through whatever it is. Um, whether they're my staff member or my colleague, my, you know, the person I just met at the bar, um, whatever it might be. So yeah, it's a, you know, it's something different that we, you know, we carry it differently than, um, just anybody going out into the world. To There's a way that I've gotten around that as a deacon and that's being missionally appointed to my church mm -hmm. and working my job because I work at a health center in Buffalo. And um, this is a health center that um, it, for a lot of reasons, various reasons, they could never sign off on me as being a minister, but mm -hmm. I'm there being a support and a voice for health equity um, population health. So, um, and being appropriate stewards of like the resources that we have in order to like deliver quality care. Cause if you don't deliver quality care, people's quality of life suffers, obviously. Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I should say that it would be easy for me to do that if I was a deacon. 
but I am an elder and I, mm-hmm. and I haven't felt called to switch from, um, elder to deacon. And I was asked when I took personal leave, if I would, they could easily have done that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, that's not where I feel called. Like it, you still sacramentally called. I and still okay. feel sacramentally called. And so like how, yeah, living into that has been, uh, interesting, you know, like I've still, um, uh, we don't consider wet, wedding sacrament, but I still have done weddings. I still um, share communion. It looks different at times. And sometimes it doesn't look different because I'm in a local church, you know, stepping in when their pastor can't be there or when they didn't have a pastor for a while mm-hmm. or whatever um, it might look like. But um, I still feel like even when I break bread with people um, and it looks different than normal communion, like there's a communion that's happening there um that's just it's just different how do we help how do we help the mm-hmm. the church see see what ministry is evolving into and be able to say it's a, okay for it to evolve right mm-hmm. um, I think that's yeah. yeah can we just for the sake of our non-united Methodist insider audience members yes. yeah go back and unpack a little bit of what all of these uh some of the terms we've tossed around are personal leave, extension mm-hmm. ministry, deacon and elder and sacrament. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Just like unravel some of that for our non-United Methodist peeps. <laughs> Absolutely. So as um, in the United Methodist Church, uh, you go through a process to, um, you can be a local pastor, which is um, cr- credentialing certificate through going through certain classes, or you could become a deacon, which is ministry to the world. Um, in the world and mission and, um, word service, compassion, and justice. Thank you. Um, and then, um, you can also be ordained an elder, which, um, is, is what I've been ordained, um, which is word sacrament order, um, and what service service. Thank you. I'm like, I know there's one I'm missing. Okay. I I live it, but I, yeah. Yeah. Um, Um, and so, um, and in the United Methodist church, um, an elder and deacon, they have to be appointed. Um, so in order for me to retain my credentials, I had to be appointed to something um, if I wasn't appointed to a local church. Um, so I was appointed to what's called personal leave, which is me voluntarily choosing to be on leave from serving local churches. And um, the body of the United Methodist Church in upstate New York um, has to approve that every year at our annual meeting. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And to be missionally appointed by to a church means that you are um, serving the world um, in kind of like the capacity of your church. So it can be both inside and outside the church. So um, that's kind of what I do. I do both inside. I do Bible studies. I help with worship when I don't have a nursing baby. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I do um, work with them to do um, um, visioning and stuff like that. And then uh, I work out in the world in my job. And then I tell people about the things that I learn about in my job and, you know, the ways in which they can help as a congregation. So, yeah. Yeah, totally. And I mean, we, so Emily, thank you for lifting up that not everybody listening to this is United Methodist, but also, frankly, even if you are United Methodist, this shit gets confusing. It really, really does. Yeah, (laughs) it does. Absolutely does. (laughs) So I wanted to mention, since we were talking about um, people being outside of the church, and thank you for being patient with me. We literally got out at like 10 to noon. No worries. We got out of service. I had to like wrangle my four-year-old and my Um, six-month-old. So this past week, um, I work in healthcare. So I listened to uh, the 2022 keynote address of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, which is given by Dr. Don Berwick. Um, who is this phenomenal speaker, and he's sort of like the moral heart of of healthcare delivery in the United States. And he talked about the ways in which our systems in the United States are set up backwards, and they're set up to basically extract wealth from the poor and the middle class and give it to the richest people. And um, which is true, because that's been going on in most industries in the United States. And now they've figured out, oh, here's the next way we can extract wealth. 
and give it to rich people because we we've done it in almost every other industry. Mm-hmm. And the thing that always astonishes me is how much there are so many questions of morality in our modern day, you know, in the society in which we live that I feel like our, you know, our congregations could have like a voice in contributing to in a positive way. And that our communities, if we would like build them in that way, could have a positive contribution to the morals and ethics of like how we behave as a society. But the church has become rather malevolent in the ways that it does that. It's driven people out of the churches. And um, the thing that I see the most often is that, you know, if you're on Twitter and you see somebody make a hateful statement, nine times out of 10, if you click to see what their profile header is, it says Christian in it. Mm-hmm. So like, what the hell is going on in our churches if people think that making hateful statements on Twitter is being a Christian? Yeah. I mean, it is baffling to me. And then you hear about, you know, people being bankrupted by needing medical care and you're like, what the hell are we doing guys yeah mm-hmm. and then they the, the people who are christians on twitter are saying well this is the way we do health care and it is the correct way we do health care and i'm like have you ever stopped to think about whether or not jesus would agree with that right yeah <laughs> absolutely um absolutely i i am fortunate that i work in um the clinical and translational science institute at u of r which um mm-hmm deals with bringing research from what they call the bench to bedside to curbside faster. So bringing it from um, experiment to actually being able to be utilized in the community. And one of the segments within um, that program, it's a national program. So it's kind of like the research arm across all um, major huge hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, um, you know, they have this community engagement core piece where it's really about how how do you help bring the community in to be a part of these, um, not just a part of the trials, but a part of like um, helping healthcare understand what are the needs and the disparities that are within um, our communities. And it's a, mm-hmm. and also then like educating, right? So it kind of goes both ways. Like we need to learn from the community and then it also opens the door for us to teach the community about different things that are happening or, um, you know, how do you take care of diabetes or how do you take care of um, an elderly person that's sick or how do you take care, like any type of you know, how do you deal with high blood pressure? How do you, all of those pieces. Um, and so it's a real, you know, I think there's different, oh, there's ways to use some of this stuff that, like you said, would be really good, like for our communities to really be able to feed into um, helping to educate what's going on. Um, one of the things that I learned when I was a new church start pastor was I needed to like go and learn about the community, but not about, um, not be asking from the community, but more of going and talking in the community and saying, Hey, you know, this is who I am, but I want to learn about you. Tell me, tell me as the principal of this school, like, what are the biggest needs and that you see in this community? You know, Mm -hmm. what are your needs? How, you know, what are things like if, if I could go get five things for you in the next year, what would they be? Um, and really kind of learning like that, that way. And so for me, like it, it really kind of, you know, that's really the piece of trying to figure out how do we bridge these, not just with healthcare and, you know, with the church and with all, you know, schools, like there's so many different pieces to this, right? Like how do we help bridge that? And we could be, we could be the bridgers that would like bridge all of this together to help get that information. But Jessica, you're so right. Like there's so many, so many times where, when people will be like, well, are you a Christian? And I'm like, well, tell me your definition of that before I answer yes mm-hmm. <laughs> or no. Mm-hmm. Like I, cause I'm not, mm-hmm. um, my seminary professor posted a picture of a t-shirt this last week that said, um, I am a love your neighbor Christian, not the Christians that, um, uh, invaded the Capitol on, uh, insurrection mm-hmm. on January 6th, right? Like having to define what type of Christian we are like that, it just, um, I don't know. These are, these are things that are like really, yeah, they're really huge outside of the church right now. Yeah. I think they're big inside the church too, but I think it's really 
really big outside the church because it's those buzzwords of, yeah, I'm a, a Christian or I'm a pastor or I'm this or I'm that. Like, mm-hmm. what does that mean? It ha- carries so many different definitions anymore. Um, it really is a, a different landscape to walk through. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so Becky, while you were talking about um, just how how differently you have uh, interpreted what ministry is in your life since leaving the local church, and while we've talked about the, the, the struggles of our churches shrinking and atrophying and kind of the future of the church. Um, one thing that is, has been sitting heavily on my heart for a while is that I just got ordained last fall mm-hmm. and we had seven people in our ordination class. We had one lonely commissioner, our friend Segei, out of a very large conference. We one person came yeah. forward for that blessing and only two interviewed with boom. So it wasn't, it wasn't some, it wasn't a situation that like, it was just a bad year and people didn't pass. Yeah. Um, so it, it, there's just, there's a, there is a very large scale issue going on in the church that we're not, we're not reaching who we need to be. We're not encouraging people to come up through this process. We're not helping people discover their callings and really embrace their gifts and find themselves useful and needed and wanted in the life of the church. Um, and frankly, we're just scaring people away. It, it took me, it, I mean, the reason why I just got ordained last fall is because I, I spent years wrestling with, you know, once, you know, once I, I'm fully enmeshed in the institution as an elder, am I going to be able to handle that? Right. I mean, and women in particular were teaching them, oh, no, 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 you don't want to have to take on that yoking because it's going to be bad, bad, bad for your husband and kids. And isn't that really where you need to be is barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. But, you know, that's an aside. Um, (laughs) But either way, like, you know, how can we be doing this better? Because I feel like, you know, if we were really lifting up bar chaplain as a legitimate calling, I, I think that that would turn on a lot more light bulbs that aren't getting turned on by anything the United Methodist Church is doing right now. Because whatever we're doing, we're doing it wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a, you know, there's a lot of things that have gone into uh, where our, at least Upper New York Conference is at. Um, mm-hmm. I will say that um, as a woman that was in leadership um, in the annual conference and and removed from leadership, um because my vision and thought was not, um, uh, was causing barriers for others and roadblocks. And instead of that being the, the thing that was mentioned, um, I was removed because I was too emotional. Um, and my emotions shut down the room. That's what I was told by leadership. Here, so, that makes me emotional. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I, when we don't accept how the Holy Spirit moves in people, mm-hmm. when we take people's emotions as just in their, you know, we put people in a position of power to be able to determine um, what is an okay emotion and what is not. Um, I think the Holy Spirit moves sometimes in ways that make people uncomfortable. And, and, and not just sometimes, I just think always the Holy Spirit usually moves yes, in a way that makes people uncomfortable, right? Because that's how we change, that's how we move. And um, for me, the Holy Spirit moves. And when the Holy Spirit is really moving within me um, and my peace is disrupted from it, um, tears flow and I can't control that. Um, and that um, caused a lot of um, others to be uncomfortable. And, um, there was a lot of pieces that went to it, but when you have leadership that that's, they're shutting down and not accepting people for who they are and who God has created them to be, it makes it really hard for others to be willing to be in that company and be willing to come up into that. 
And, um, you know, I wish I could point to one person and say that was the only person. Um, no, there's multiple people that are in leadership and still in leadership um, because they were put in leadership um, and that are that way. And so um, there might've been one person that was the major component of that, but it, um, there's others that follow suit. And so how, how do we help um, empower women in ministry and not shut them down? Um, because in external places, so for instance, in the place I am now, um, I'm not, um, I found myself apologizing for my emotions not that long ago with my um, principal investigator. And he said, don't ever apologize for how you feel. He's like, you like, you know, do you have a right to feel what you're feeling right now? And it was so freeing to hear that. And so to be honest, like for me, I really feel that part of the problem is like you said, we're not allowing people to live into who they are and who God has created them to be and who God has called them to be. And we have this box that we expect people to fit into and this mold that if you don't fit in, you know, if you're a round peg and you are trying to fit into this square hole, it's just not going to happen. And so sorry, then you must not be called to be in ministry. I struggle with that um, because I think God calls all shapes and sizes of different types of people for a reason, because none of us are cookie cutter, right? Like we're all different. And the people that don't know who God is and God's love, um, they're all different too. And we don't know what type of human being is going to connect. And who are we to say that this type of person is the only type of person that, that can, that can connect someone to God? Um, it must look this way, um, and connecting to some, someone to God must look this specific way. Um, I think there's fruits in the lives of people that I have been working with. Um, I've seen people change and move in, in such amazing ways in the last four years, um, and seeing how they've changed and developed, but they will never tell you that it's because of God's love in God's grace, when I can see that it is because of God's love and God's grace, right? Like, so we want to put people in this box and it just doesn't, we got to break the box. God doesn't fit in a box, never has fit in a box, never will fit in a box. A grave couldn't keep God in. Nothing's going to keep God in. Um, and somehow the church has to. Gates of hell could not prevail against him. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so like, you know, why do we think we can keep God in a box? Um, and it must be this way. Uh, it just, it doesn't work. And we're seeing it doesn't work because no, no one wants to, I don't want to say no one, but for the majority, people don't want to follow into that. They, they see what they see in the world. They see what they hear on TV. They see what they hear in the news and, and they don't want anything to do with that. So, yes. and that's actually, when you talk about, you know, because your, your tears would flow, you know, in the corporate world where I've worked um, and I've been working in healthcare for like 12 years and um, tears, if you're in a room with all women, you can usually like get away with tears, yeah. but it's like anger, anger. That's okay to display when you're in a meeting, because that's the default, you know, emotion of men, mm -hmm. but tears that's the default emotion of women and oh, that's forbidden, but you could like cuss somebody out in a meeting. Well, not anymore, but you could still get pretty angry in a meeting and people yeah. are going to let that happen and yeah. not reprimand you in the way that they are with tears. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, because that involves vulnerability, you know, yes. but um, it's so fascinating to me because my new pastor came from the Florida conference and they've been raising up. They like the Bishop specifically said, we are going to raise up young pastors. We are going to raise up young people and put them in ministries in laity and in, you know, ordained um, ministry. And people apparently got very angry because they were like, well, I've earned my seat at the table and you're going to give it away to some young person. So there's this power dynamic, but also to have a bishop actually say, we're going to raise up young people and not just like second gen, you know, second um, career boomers and put them in, you know, ministry positions. I was like, <laughs> Lord is doing better than us. What? <laughs> so, yeah. 
Oh, they also remember they also have like really warm weather 24 7. That's true. That's helpful. Yeah. (laughs) I think part of it too, though, you know, earlier, Becky, when you were talking about the, the call that you experienced to an MBA, part of what you were saying was that, you know, you've got, you've got your son to care for and you've got finances to consider and you've got to um, recognize the, the interplay of student loans and financial needs and cost of living and all of that. This is a conversation that I was having with my spouse very, very recently. Um, so in the Upper New York Annual Conference, we've been, we have 12 districts, which used to be overseen by 12 district superintendents. That number then shrunk to nine, and we wound up in this weird regional sort of setup where there were three DSs for every four districts. Now that number is going to shrink again, right? The news just came out, I don't know, a week or two ago, that three district superintendents are rotating off, their terms are up or what have you, and those positions are not going to be filled. So now we have 12 districts with six district superintendents. And mm-hmm. I was talking with a denominational leader in a different part of the country, and they were telling me that this is not just true in Upper New York. They were telling me there's another conference in the United States that went from 10 to 5 at once. Like, they didn't step down the way we did from our 12 to 9 to 6. They they cut the number of DSs in half in one in one move. And so... You know, in, in talking with, with my spouse about this, I said, he, he said to me, Emily, there's no upward mobility. Yours is the only industry that I can think of where there's no upward mobility. And I got to thinking about it. And I, at first I was a little defensive, like, well, we get our annual year of service raise. And then I was like, that's like 10 bucks a month, <laughs> maybe 12, it's like 10 or 12 bucks a month. And, and there's suggested cost of living raise. I'm fortunate enough that where I'm appointed now, they tend to follow the suggested cost of living raise. But even at that, the the most recent cost of living raise was suggested at something like 2%. Inflation has been what, 7%, 9%? So functionally, it's like taking a pay cut. Oh, yeah. and, and so, you know, I was, I was thinking about kind of where I'm going to be 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now, 30 years from now, I'm going to be making pretty much exactly what I make, doing pretty much exactly what I do now. That's not, mm-hmm. and and so there's, there's very little incentive, I think. And I think that millennials and Gen Zs are starting to wise up to sort of the older mentality of, oh, well, you just do it because you love it, or you do it because God called you to it. I, I am a pastor. That's an exploitation. It is. And and initially, yes, I am a pastor because God called me to it. And I, I do like what I do for a living most of the time, some of the time, but, but also I have value with the skills and gifts and education and abilities that I bring to the table. And that ought to be compensated fairly. And I've got four babies to feed and a mortgage to pay. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. And if you are a big part of it too. Yeah. If you were a doctor, let's face it, getting an MDiv is almost as much as going to get a doctorate of credit mm-hmm. wise. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a specialist. Yeah you should get paid at a specialist rate. Um, and we're not, and you know, I can't say a whole lot in the sense of, you know, I'm not making tons of more money at uh, what I'm doing right now, but there is upward mobility. Like you said, like I see where the next steps are. Um, I know how to get to those steps and it takes time, but I'll get there. Um, in the church there isn't. And in fact, like it's not just that there's no upward more mobility. There's, there's not upward mobility, even in size of church to serve, right? Uh, mm-hmm. because that, you know, there aren't any big steeple appointments anymore. No. And even the, I mean, the that- only one that we really have, that's like visibly. So there's like two, maybe Pendle- Pendleton center, which is up the road for me. And like Asbury. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And even the, you know, Cicero in, in Syracuse um, mm -hmm. used to be, um, and it's still it's probably is considered one, but it's not anymore. Um, you know, that those churches, like, they're not something that you can just move up into. Right. You know, there's, um, there's a lot of politics and all of that. Yep. So it's, um, and I don't say that in a mean way. It's just the reality of what it is. Right. Um, so yeah, there's no upward mobility. And um, I did not take an oath of poverty. Um, that, I was know. Not, that was not in our, our um, vows that we had to take as clergy women. Exactly. Or men. I mean, when, yeah. You know. We're, you're not nuns. You're not monks. <laughs> no. Mm -hmm. right. um, That's baffling to me. Yeah. But especially as clergy women, you know, I heard you say clergy women and then catch yourself in this or men, but, but also it's not lost on me that every single time I've changed appointments, I've been mm -hmm. billed to the SPRC as a cost savings mm -hmm. because every single time I've changed appointments, my salary coming in has been less than my predecessor. Some of that has to do with years of service. And in the case of where I am right now, to be completely fair, um, my predecessor was an elder with way more years of service who also had a doctoral degree. So regardless of gender, it's appropriate that he was paid more than I was. He's got more experience in credentialing, mm -hmm. but that's not always been the case. I have followed people who, um, who did not have the credentialing or experience or resume or what have you that I had. Mm -hmm. And invariably when I follow a man, I get, I get paid less than yeah. my predecessor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There is a, um, a, a question in my ordination paperwork that was like, you as a deacon, if the bishop appoints you, will you take that appointment? And I almost replied to it with have any of you ever heard the song um by cage the elephant ain't no rest for the wicked <laughs> because that's how i i almost put down the lyrics to that song there ain't no rest for the wicked. money don't grow on trees i got bills to pay i got mouths to feed there ain't nothing in the world for free it's like you cannot ask me to work a free appointment because i won't do it yeah 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 and a lot of times that's yeah. what deacons are expected to do yeah well and and women, um, deacons and elders and local pastors, so many of us are um, abused by um, people that we're in ministry with um, or to with. It's really more with or should be with, um, you know, the, the things that we experience about, um, you know, people commenting on our bodies or commenting on our clothes or commenting on how our voice is. Um, you know, I've, I've done that experience having a male clergy person stand next to me, um, in the greeting line. And, and I'm like, listen to what they say to you. And then what they say to me, I planned the worship service. I led the worship service. He got credit for all of the great comments about the worship service. People commented on my hair, commented on my clothes, commented on the pitch of my voice in the sermon. Um, rarely a, a few, there were some that, thought it was a great service and would say so to me, but the male pastor was the one that always got. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm like, just listen to that. Like you, you, no one comments on your tie. No one comments on your, uh, what dress pants you wore that day. No one comments on your shoes. Um, those are the comments you get. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that, you know, and that's putting it nicely there's other situations I could talk about um but we would probably be here all day um you know of, of situations and you all I'm certain that all of us have them of things that we've experienced or gone through um and I'm not saying that male clergy don't go through it but they don't they definitely don't go through it to the extent and the level that women clergy do mm -hmm. they go through I think probably different matters yeah it, it's mm -hmm. kind of weird that the things that they put up with are very I think are pretty different in a lot of ways mm -hmm. yeah yeah I raised up this challenge to a couple of my male colleagues uh in the ministry and I'll raise it up to anybody who's listening to this who happens to be a, a minister who is a man um next Sunday go to church wearing a space suit and just see if anybody says anything about your outfit 
-hmm. you're dressed very conspicuously and very inappropriately for church just see if anybody says anything just Mm -hmm. just see just see Mm -hmm. because i guarantee that if i you know if i wear even remarkable shoes or something like that i'm going to be hearing about it Mm -hmm. so please tell me what it's like no one's taken me up on this yet (laughs) (laughs) maybe you should just buy a space suit and offer it (laughs) i mean to be fair to be fair those are probably really expensive but still that's what i'm thinking yeah (laughs) a halloween costume yeah or a onesie you know like those onesie pajama things you know yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah I heard a story one time of a Presbyterian pastor who actually came into his congregation dressed in a very, very goofy suit that was gladly the cross-eyed bear. <laughs> you get it? You get the joke? Okay. Yeah. He was like a giant, had like a giant head with cross eyes on it. Yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> That's so funny. Terrible. Yeah. But, uh, so- yeah and and I I don't mean to like and that's part of the reason why I'm saying I'm like don't mean to actually like denigrate any of our male colleagues because like I've heard them be I've heard some stories of them going through some very abusive situations themselves Mm -hmm. it's just the I think the abuse that we take is often different Mm -hmm. but thankfully I've, I've been minimized in anything that I've taken from my congregation and I know a lot of other people have not been that lucky so Yeah. We carry the burden of patriarchy. It is unique. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot that can get us down in this life and in the ministry. So to counterbalance some of that energy, one question we always like to ask our guests, Becky, is what excites you right now? Oh my goodness. So many things. Um, probably one of the biggest things was, um, is having my manager at, uh, the kitchen, uh, the restaurant I work at, um, be like, this is a ministry for you. Like literally even just last night when I was working, she's like, this whole thing is a ministry for you. Like they can see it and how I act and how I interact and what I do and how I act with the staff and how I act with the customers. And, um, you know, there's just a different spirit about me. Um, and, I think for me, what's exciting is to know that the, the possibilities are endless there. Um, and what I'm doing, the possibilities of showing people God's love and um, in, in every area that I am uh, living in right now, um, the possibilities are endless and, and I'm accepted for who I am. And that tells me that there's hope and there's excitement around how do we help others learn how to accept each other for who they are? And worry about letting God do God's work um, and, and not feeling like we need to change people or people need to change before they can be around us, but more of just, you know, unconditional love changes people uh, just by sharing that with, with others. And I've seen that change in the last year, especially, uh, and it's just really, to me, it's exciting to live into, and I'm excited to see where the church can go. Um and I'm also really excited about the new leadership that our annual conference has. Um, for those who haven't met Bishop um, Hector, um, he is genuine, and it is um, it is really uh, neat to watch. Uh, neat is not necessarily the right word. It's just very exciting and empowering to watch uh, him work. So mm-hmm. um, I know God's working through him, and uh, I'm excited to see where everything goes. Totally. Totally. I am too. Becky, the last question that we always ask the people that we interview here, if there was one thing and only one thing that you could tell the world about God, what would that one thing be? Hmm, Just one. Um, God does not make junk and you Mm. were created in the image of God. You're the first person to say that. Mm-hmm. that's so beautiful yeah I'm scribbling cry. that down right now <laughs> I might <Yeah>. cry <laughs> I might too for a while God does not make junk it's 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 kind of heartbreaking and bittersweet that that hits so hard 
because it means you've heard the opposite. Yeah, I think I've heard that. that. Yeah, I've heard that. I've seen that. I've seen that in the charting work that I do at my job. People think that they are trash. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. God doesn't make junk. You don't have to, you don't have to live like that. You don't have to because God loves you. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that before. There's something about here in this moment. I don't know. Hearing it now, hearing it from you. I I don't know. Spirit just moved. It is what it is. Yeah. I'm going to let that just wash over me today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Becky, thank you so, so much for coming here and sharing your heart and your stories with us. You really, really are a gift to everyone that you meet. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. It's definitely, uh, I don't do it on my own. God, God works in, through me and inside of me and (laughs) be to God for that. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Peace and love. Peace and love to you guys too. Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers is produced by Natalie Bowerman, Emily Hugie, and Jessica Glazer.